Amen. Well, if you would, grab a copy of Scripture, open to Luke chapter 15, the 15th chapter of Luke. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in front of you and the pew in front of you. You can grab that. Open to page 1203 and you'll find us there in Luke 15. As we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke, we've come to what is the most famous story ever told by the most famous person who ever lived. The parable of the prodigal sons. These two sons and the story that Jesus will tell us this morning uh, is, is really just left an indelible mark on every life who has ever read it, ever studied it. And this morning, uh, my prayer is that uh, simply I can get through it. It is so uh, emotional and so wrought with uh, just emotion that it is uh, it, the power in this passage of Scripture it affects me like none other. So let's pray this morning and then we'll read Luke chapter 15. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Lord God, we give you glory and praise for this magnificent gift that you've given us. It's perfect and errant in every way. This morning, the desire of our heart is to come before it in humility, allow it to move on our lives to speak into our hearts in such a way, Lord God, that it would transform us, Father, as only it can. We give you, Lord God, all freedom to move in this place, God, to move in our lives, to do what only you can do this morning, Father. I ask for your grace as I preach through this amazing text. And God, may it all be for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we can't read the parable without understanding the context, so we'll begin with verses 1 and 2, and then we'll skip down to verse 11 and begin reading the parable of the lost sons. Luke 15, verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, that's Jesus, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Verse 11. Then Jesus said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions on prodigal living. But when he had spent all, he arose and a severe famine uh, in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen in that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Verse 16. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and 
put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be married. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And he began to be merry. Now the older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked them what this meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came... Who has devoured your livelihood with harlots? You killed the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This story is so powerful because it's a story about life, it's a story about being human. It's a story that every single person in this room can relate to in more than one way. It's a story that whenever you read it, the place in which you are in your life sort of wells up to the top. I've noticed that over the years as I've walked with the Lord and as this passage of Scripture has worked in my heart, that every time I am confronted with the reality of what Jesus is saying here, it it reminds me of where I am right now in that process. I can remember reading this when my children were young and finding some some principles in the hope and in the assurance. I can remember reading this uh, with, before I had children. I can remember reading this in dark times and in, in light times in my life. And in the past week, I can tell you that it has just uh, vandalized my heart as I have read this passage of Scripture and studied it word by word over and over. It has just been so very uh, wonderful and yet painful all at the same time as I, you know, face uh, in just a few weeks the graduation of my first child. And uh, you just, you, you look back across your life and you, you think of all the things that you've done and, and maybe what you could have done or should have done and you just examine things and the reality of Scripture is just so uh, amazing as it works in our hearts. It's, it's really about the courage that it takes to look in the mirror. This story will, will cause us to look in the mirror and have to admit that despair is not far away. That the truth is, and we all know it but don't want to talk about it, is that we're all hanging by our fingernails. We're all gripping to life and just dangling by this slender thread of God's grace. And at any moment, it could snap. And at any moment, we would find ourselves in a place that we never thought we'd be. It's about the emptiness that gnaws at the human soul that just eats away at us as we are apart from God. It really is real life. It's real families. It's real broken relationships. It is the reality of life on this fallen earth and the reality of how sin has so affected our lives and how God is so gracious in light of all that we have done. But above all things, this story is about encountering a relationship that is of such 
generosity. It's such a love. It's so magnificent. It's so incomprehensible. And it can yet change any life. But spoken in a language that we understand, written down in words that we can read, it is mere text. It's letters and commas and periods. And yet... I cannot grasp all that this passage has to say to us. I am in awe of what God says here and the implications for me and for you this morning. This is why this is the most famous story Jesus ever told. Over the course of history, millions and millions of people have come to Christ through the reading or the hearing of this very story. It's obvious as soon as you read it that the Father in the story is God. That God is portraying Himself as the Father in this story and that the two sons clearly represent the groups of people that Jesus is talking to, though many people miss this when they read it. You see, there's the younger son represented by... Verse 1, that says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Jesus to hear Him. That's the younger son. The younger son represents the irreligious, the the rebellious, the the willful sinner, the one who is uh, most alienated, the tax collector, the sinner, not allowed in in the synagogues, not allowed to worship, totally outcast by their own people, seen as a traitor. And so the young son is so easy to read this passage and look down upon what he has done and and cast uh, just judgment upon him for his actions towards his father. And yet a humble heart will receive the reality of how we can plug ourselves right in. We can write our name right into this text where it says the younger son. Then there's the older son. The older son is represented in passage, uh, the second passage that says the Pharisees and the scribes complain, saying this man, he receives sinners and he eats with them. You see, if for me, I don't know about for you, but for me, and I think for many of you, the story goes something like this. We read this story and we recognize that as we began our journey with the Lord, when God found us and saved us, We were the younger son. But if we're not careful over time, we become the older son. And so those of us who have walked with the Lord for any amount of time can read this parable and really realize that we're the younger son and the older son. And that we need to be aware of both. And that we have the capacity and the propensity to walk in both of these characters. At any time, we must be cautious and we must hear what God is saying to us. So today, we'll most likely not make it past Act 1. So let's look at the very first act of this drama that plays out beginning in verse 11. So Jesus says to them, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Now you want to underline in your Bible in verse 12, Give me, because there's the motivation behind the son's words. It's really a statement that astonishes the hearers. When when the Pharisees and the scribes hear the very first introduction into this story, they are utterly and completely flabbergasted at what they hear. This is an unheard of 
statement. This is so harsh and so brash. This is so cunning and ruthless that it's, it's, it's the feeling that you and I get when we watch the news and there's a report of some unconscionable crime, of some evil that is, is even astonishing in this world where we cringe at the thought of what has occurred. That's what is happening here. If this man has two sons, which he does, in this culture, then when he would die, he would divide his estate according to the, the cultural uh, just uh, method of dividing an estate. And that would mean two-thirds of his estate would go to his eldest son, one-third would go to the younger son. In the Hebrew culture, the older sibling, the older boy, would always get a double portion. And the firstborn is the one who would carry on the lineage, the one who would be entrusted with the name, but only upon the father's death. And so what we find here is that the son is basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Dr. Kenneth Bailey, who is a missionary uh, to the Middle East, he spent over 30 years in the Middle East. He wrote a book called The Prodigal Son and the Cross. And in that book... He describes how he became fascinated and intrigued with the culture of the Middle East through their perception of this story. And so he chronicles his journey from village to village across that entire region of the globe. And every time he traveled to a new village, he would read this story to a new group of people. And then he would interview them about what they thought about the story that they had just heard. He would ask them this question. He would say, has anyone in your village ever done what this son has done? He never once had anyone ever respond that they had ever seen or heard of anyone ever making such a request. But then he would ask this question. If a son in your village would ask their father for their inheritance prior to his death, what would happen? And 100% of the time, the response was always the son would be driven from the home by force because of the heinousness of what is being said here. You see, this son, this younger son, is saying to his father that I'm interested in the things that you have to offer me, but I'm not interested in you. Your stuff is what I want, but you I do not want. It is all about what can be gained through the relationship that has nothing to do with the person behind the stuff. It really is the ultimate picture of rejection. Rejection is one of the most painful emotions that we can feel. But if you imagine rejection in the context of the love that's supposed to exist between a father and a son, it's almost hard to comprehend. And yet I know that within the sound of my voice, there are people in this very room who know all too well exactly what this feels like. But you know what's even more astonishing about this? Is the response of the father. In 12b, the second half of verse 12, the Bible says, So the father divided to them his livelihood. That word, livelihood, that's the Greek word bios, where we get biology or life. It means that the father divided his life. In other words, 
the father tore apart his life. He divided apart his life. He liquidated his, his, all of his life's earnings and everything that he had to show for on this. He divided that up amongst them and he gave it to them. Why? You see, this is the question that we're confronted with immediately. Is why? Why, why would this father do this? And then we, we come up with all these wonderful, you know, spiritual parenting principles about why this father divided up his life. But you know what the reason is? He divided up his life because the father's love is not a possessive love. You see, the thing that, that unsettles my heart, the thing that sort of knocks me to my knees is the reality that we don't talk about, the truth that we don't want to really deal with, and that is that our Father's love is not a possessive love. In the sense that this morning, just like every other time we gather together, there may be people here this morning who are contemplating leaving the Father's love. And to them, the Father will bid farewell for a time. That we don't serve a God who imprisons us or who, who shackles us to Himself. That this love is not a possessive love. It's the greatest love that we can ever imagine, yet it's very different from the love that we have. You see, our human response to this very situation in America today would go something like this. Well, son, I'll make a deal with you. If you'll stay, here's what me and your mom will do. You know, I wonder why there are so many adult children who are unable to get out from under the comfort of their parents. I wonder why there's this compelling side in us and the brokenness of who we are, the way that sin has tarnished us and changed us that makes us want to to cling and hold on. And even when we as parents sometimes know that it's not the right thing to do, that they're not living according to the way they ought to live, that somehow, uh, and we've, we can look back over the span of our uh, last 5, 10, 15 years and we can see that our standards have steadily declined, that what we once thought we would never allow to go on in our home now seems to be acceptable, even somewhat we're thankful that it hasn't gotten any worse. You see, we would begin to bargain. We would begin to clamor. We would begin to work at some way to to hold on. But this father says, you're free to go. Take it and go. See, that's not how I am. That's not how I am. And I don't know about you. But you see, that's what makes God so amazing. Is that He... He draws us unto Himself in His own way. That He works through His glory. And this, this story, it just reminds me that though I know my heart is prone to wander, there's no lock on the gate. But today, 
I could run out of the bounds of His protection. I could, I could run off to my own prodigal way today. So how about you? How about you, Christian? How about you who finds yourself so busy that a few minutes a day in God's Word becomes just impossible, too overwhelmed with circumstances to seek His face in prayer so easily Life just takes us over. You know why? Because we underestimate the danger of our own wayward hearts. You know what I think about? I think about the way the father responds to this younger son. And all week long, I think about how how many times things try to thwart my relationship with my heavenly father. How easy it is to to excuse things away and how quickly I can become the older brother and say, well, Lord, I'm going to do today what I'm supposed to do because that's what I'm supposed to do. But you know, folks, we need to realize that when we find ourselves consumed by affections for things of this world, the gate's not locked. You're free to go. And it should remind us of the times that we've encountered people who we share the gospel with and they respond with, I'm doing great, everything's fine. I don't have any problems. Why do I need God? To which we reply, good luck with that. But in that moment and in that time, they don't see this kind of love. Verse 13, not many days after that, so very soon, probably as soon as possible, the younger son, he... He gathered everything together and he journeyed to a far country and he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. The man sent him into the fields to feed his swine. He would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, but there was nothing. No one gave him anything to eat. Well, can we just pause for a moment and thank God that things don't go well in a distant land? How grateful should we be that life never works out in a distant land? How wonderful is it that this story is not different? What would have happened if the story went, the son asked for all that he was to inherit and the father freely gave it and the son ran to a distant land and everyone lived happily ever after? You see, that would be the tragedy, the glorious truth, the most wonderful thing that I celebrate in my life every time I think about who I used to be is that the distant land never works. 
I tried. You tried. It's our story that we ran. We lived. We did all we could do and it doesn't work. It never works. And thank God for that. It's His grace that doesn't let the land work. It's His grace that brings the famine. It's His grace that makes us hungry. What a nightmare it would be if it worked. If there were joy in a distant land, if you could, if you could go to a distant land and, and find happiness and peace. But the good news is you can't. It's not there. Verse 17, so when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? He says, I will Arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he comes to himself in this, in the realization that life won't work in a distant land. And immediately as we read this text, we're all drawn back to all of us in this room who have been born again into the kingdom of God's love. We remember the moment and time, the place. We know we all have experienced our own pig slop. We've all been in that place looking at the pods and and longing to eat. It looked different for me than it looked for you, but it was a distant land. And it didn't work. And the grace of God brings about repentance. I want you to see the picture here of true repentance. The, 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 the components, the elements that make up what repentance is. And the love of God that enables it to come. The first thing we see is that it, he comes to himself. The young son, he comes to himself. Well, what does that mean? It means that He came to who He is. That you and I can can never truly know who we are apart from a knowledge of God. We can't do that. In other words, when He comes to Himself, He realizes that, that He's been created by God. He realizes that He belongs to the Father. That He was made in His image and that He was... Made for His glory. You see, that's the realization is that our life gets us into such a place that suddenly we realize we don't know where we came from. We don't know why we're here. We don't know whose we are. But you see, this son realizes that he has a father. That he belongs to a father. He realizes that he came from someone. That that father had has hopes for him. That father has plans for him. He realizes, he comes to himself, meaning he realizes who he really is. Apart from a knowledge of God, you cannot know who you are. Because God is the one who made you. You bear His image. And you are made for His glory. And so we first have to come to ourselves. But secondly, we see in repentance that his heart is broken over the way in which he's offended God, his life. Look at the brokenness of his heart in verse 18. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You see, there's no entitlement in true repentance. There's no, this son is not 
coming before his father and saying, Father, is I, I'm your, so you owe me a second chance. You, you owe me to let me back in. I'm your, I'm your flesh and blood. That it would be wrong for you not to do this. There's no entitlement here. Repentance acknowledges. It, it declares that we have zero claim on the father's love. Because of what we've done. Because we're rebels and pirates. Because we have lived for our own glory and not for His. Because of our sin, we have separated ourselves from a loving Father and therefore have no claim, no entitlement upon His love. It's if the Father chooses to receive us, it can only be in sheer grace. We don't come meriting anything. That's why the Son declares that I'm not even worthy to be called your son. You see, the only thing that he could possibly use as leverage to try to force the father to accept him would be that he is his son. And that's broken in repentance. There's no merit. You don't come bearing any works declaring your goodness. No, you're not worthy. I'm not worthy. The son comes unworthy. So he comes to himself, he comes brokenhearted. And he realizes that any life, any life with the father is infinitely better than life without him. That any life, notice what he says. He says, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare, but I perish with hunger. In other words, he's saying, no matter what the circumstances of him receiving me would be, even if I were a servant, even if I were an outcast, just to be accepted by Him, just to be in His presence, just to be forgiven, just to be allowed back, would be better than anything I could ever experience in a distant land. You see, there's no, there's no room here for, I'm going to choose this life because it's going to make this life better. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start going to church and it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna help with the things that I'm doing. It's gonna, it's gonna help make my hopes and my dreams come true. No. It's the realization that the Father is the greatest place we could ever be. Ever is with the Father. It is, it is the pinnacle of joy and happiness and acceptance. It is, it doesn't matter what the conditions are of His acceptance. If He were to accept us, if there's a way, then it's worth it. You see, how many people want to come to the gospel, but they want to declare their conditions upon the gospel? They want to declare the way it's going to be. They, they, now pastor, this is how it's going to be. You know, I'm coming, but I'm coming under these conditions and I, I don't like things to be this way. I only want them to be this way. And there's some things in my, how do you feel about these things in my life? Because there's things in my life that I'm not willing to change and so on and so forth. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, is that you come to the Father as having come to yourself and recognized that you were made in His image. 
for His glory. There is no existence that you can possibly have apart from Him that will lead you to any joy, any happiness, any anything but doom and destruction. And then you come to Him and say, Father, whatever place in Your kingdom you might open to me is better than being apart from You. One day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Verse 20. So he arose and he came to his father. The Bible says, But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The very idea that that this dignified Jew would run down a dirt road for any reason other than he was being chased by a wild animal is utterly absurd. If the, if the hearers of this story were astonished at the boldness and brashness of the son to ask for all of his inheritance prior to his father's death, they are mortified that Jesus would portray this father, this one who is dignified, who owns this vast estate, who has servants, who would, who would tie up his tunic and show his legs in public and run down a dusty road to chase a son? No one would do this. This is absurd behavior. It's far too undignified for any father. But not this father. This father runs. This father is not concerned about what other people think. This father is not concerned about what the expectations of man are. This father Runs And here's the thing that this text just screams. Is that we, we all know. We've all got our own little mental image of the son coming home and the father. And, and maybe, you know, we add all our details. Like there he is on the porch on his rocking chair or doing whatever it is he's doing. And off in the distance he notices the son coming up the driveway. And then he jumps up and takes off running. And we just see this wonderful little house on the prairie moment. But that's not who the father is. The father is God. God's not sitting in a rocking chair. God's not relaxing, drinking iced tea. God's running the universe. God is holding everything that's ever been created in the palm of His hand. God is dictating all of the events that are happening and everything that's ever been created all simultaneously, every second of every day. He's busy doing all of that. In the midst of that, He sees the Son coming home before the Son sees Him. That this God is not preoccupied with other things that He doesn't see as children. That the thing that baffles me is that this God is watching and He's waiting and He sees and He knows. And this morning, He he knows where you are. He's been watching you all week. He knows what you're feeling. He knows where you're hurting. He knows the, the questions you long to have answers to. He knows what breaks your heart. He knows what compels you to sin. He knows that, and yet there He is, watching, waiting. He sees that you don't have to come running up and ring the doorbell. Don't you see that when your heart 
turns towards Him, He's already there. In Isaiah 55, verse 7, the Bible says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thought. Let him return to the Lord, for he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I want you to just look at that scripture for a second. I want you to just let that settle in over your heart. I want you to, I want you to just sort of let the, the religious humdrum of what that says. Oh, there's our God. There's the one that we talk about all the time. There's the one with the, the John 3.16 sign. There's the one who will pardon the sinner. And we come to him and we say, God, will you have mercy on us? Will you, will you pardon us? If, if we're, we're, we're wicked and if we forsake our way, are you there? But What's the context of that passage? What's the very next thing the Bible says after that? It's something we quote all the time, but we never put the two together. That God, after He says He'll, He'll, He'll receive the wicked if we'll turn, He'll pardon our iniquities. After that, He says, because my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. Because we're not that way. You see, we pretend to be that way. We say we're that way, but we're not. I'm not that way. I'm not that kind of father. I'm not. I get offended. I get disrespected. I get hurt. I get wounded. I get sorrowful. I even get bitter. Love is a, is a war. And God says, don't think that my love is like your love. Don't ever think that my thoughts towards you are like your thoughts towards one another. They're not that way. That my thoughts are different. See, as the heavens are above the earth, my ways are different from your ways. That's the the span of difference between the way He loves and the way we love. That when we come to Him, here's what I'm saying. That God is declaring in Isaiah 55... That He is and always has been and always will be a God who is so different from us that when a sinner, when a wicked man or woman, when a, when a rebellious teenager turns their back on a distant land and begins to move towards the Father, that He receives that child, not with any, uh, not with any conditions, not, not with any uh, parameters based on your past offenses or all the mistakes that you've made. We're not going to put you on some limited trial process. You're not going to be on a probationary sonship, but you're welcomed wholly in. He's different than we are. He says, come to me. I'm the Father. I love you. And all that you've done is separated as far as the east is from the west that my son's blood will make you now white as snow. You're forgiven. You're welcome. You're my son. Come home. All of us, we're all looking for a way home. We're looking for a way home. And everyone that's hearing Jesus tell this story is looking for a way home. And the people that are behind him that he's eating with, they think the way home is to go their own way, is to, is to live their own life, is to be their own captain. 
And the people that are in front of him that he's talking to, they think that the way home is to earn your way and to obey your way home. But they're all looking. And they're, they're asking this question. You gotta remember where this all started. They're saying, why is Jesus talking to sinners? Why is he sitting and eating with people who are immoral and who are wicked? And God is telling us this parable because he's saying, you are wrong. You've got me all wrong. You're trying to wedge me into your human understanding and that's not who I am. I don't love like you love. I love in a totally different way. My love is supernatural. It's from another place. I love with a love that exists in heaven and I pour it out on earth through my son. And that's the love that's shed abroad in the heart of the born again child of God according to Romans 5. It's that love. But apart from him, you can't understand it. You can't comprehend it. He says, you, you got God wrong. That's the platform of the parable of the lost sons. It's God's declaration. This is who I am. This is the kind of father that I am. So what about us? Well, the young son teaches us some things. I, I think that this morning there are some in this room who... Maybe this morning on the hearing of that parable are now compelled to stay home. That maybe you have been wrestling with running away to a distant land. That we're not so naive as to believe that we've all come here this morning just seeking God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. We know that's not true. So my prayer for you, husband, wife, teenager, is that if you've been contemplating a journey to a distant land, that the love of God that pours out of these pages would compel your heart to stay home. You know, sin, it's only in a sense choosing bad over good. I mean, it is doing that, but that's really not doing justice to what sin is. Sin, the essence of sin, is believing that there's life outside of God. Whatever, whatever your stronghold is, whatever your sin is this morning, whatever you struggle with, whatever is defeating you, the root of that sin is the belief that there is life outside of God. For some of you this morning... The hearing of this story compels you to come home for the very first time. To get up out of the pig slop. To walk away from whatever distant land you find yourself in. To leave behind all of the hopes and dreams that you have determined and decided you were going to live your life for. And to say, Father, life with you, whatever life that is, is infinitely more valuable than anything I could ever experience apart from you. You know, how is it that that there could be people who hear this parable 
and doubt. Doubt their standing. No, you're here this morning and you've told the people you're sitting next to that you're a Christian and you know they're concerned about you. You know they're fearful about you. And every time there's an invitation, there's all this tension going on with you and the people around you and you just wait another week or put it off another time. And on and on it goes. And yet here's, here's a father that's watching you every week. He's watching you right now. He's, he's saying, what are you going to do today? If you come to me, I'm going to receive you. No, you won't be one of my servants. You're going to be my son or my daughter. Your new name is going to be beloved. I'm going to welcome you into the the family of God. You see, because no matter what you've done, no matter what you think, no matter what human parameters you've tried to limit God to, there is a place that's so far from God that you can't get yourself out of it. But thank God there's no place that God can't get you out of it. So don't believe the lie this morning. Don't believe the lie this morning that the party is thrown for the one who earns it. Because it's not. The son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, you bring out the best robe. You put it on him. You put the ring on his hand. You put the sandals on his feet. You bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For my son was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. And they together, they, the father, the servants, the son, everyone in the household together, the family of God was merry. You know why? They were, they were cheerful. They were happy. They were celebrating. They were rejoicing because what was once lost is now found. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That He demonstrated His love for us. In that when we couldn't earn it, we couldn't do anything but wrong. Every decision we made was either based on our selfishness or our self-righteousness. And that even as His children... We wander to the gate and we sniff the outside and we look upon and gaze upon the world around us and wonder if it might be what it would be to frolic out there and to run. The gate's open. He's not locking you in this morning. Our God is such an amazing God. He says, if you don't think that I'm the greatest thing that ever was, then you go out and find something better because it doesn't exist. So who will you go to? For you, Lord, you. You're the only one that has the words of eternal life. For we've come to know and to believe that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. To whom shall you go? The Father. The Father. Welcomes home the children. Let's stand, bow our heads. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you, Lord God, for your 
love for us, Father. We thank you that you you love us, Lord God, in spite of ourselves, Father. We say with our mouths that we are grateful for what you've done. We're grateful for who you are. But, Lord God, do we really recognize the depths of your love, Lord? Do we really recognize that when we rose up and declared, whether knowing or unknowingly, we declared that what we wanted was we wanted the benefit of your stuff and not you. We wanted to to live on this earth to enjoy the wealth and prosperity that we could earn. We wanted to go out and to build our own kingdom and to be the king or the queen of that kingdom. And when we did that, you were there. And we walked away. And Lord God, for so many of us in this room, our testimony is that we walked away prideful. We walked away confident. We walked away thinking we got this. Lord, thank you. Thank you that there's no peace in a distant land. Thank you that there's no joy in a distant land. There's no belonging. There's no purpose in a distant land. And so, Father, each of us in our own way, we find ourselves sitting, looking around, wondering how in the world we get ourselves in this mess. And, Lord God, you're there. You're there. And, Lord, as we walk towards you, You meet us right where we are. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning. I pray, Lord God, that you would reveal yourself to them in such a way that they would know that you're here with us right now. You're with the most broken, the most lonely. Lord God, you're with the one who thinks everything is is okay. Lord, you're with us when we don't understand. You're with us when we don't want to understand. But Lord, in all of it, you welcome us. When we come to you, knowing that we're unworthy to be your children, but you invite us to be your beloved sons and daughters. Thank you. So, Father, I pray that whether we have contemplated leaving home or whether we've never been home, that this morning you would accomplish your perfect work in us for your glory in Jesus name. Amen.